The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We finally made our way through chapter 13 in our study of the Upper Room Discourse, and now I've landed in chapter 14, verse 1. We'll be covering the first six verses, and we'll be doing that with no small amount of frustration. This is one package that we have to take as a unit. But I must confess that every one of these verses I was tempted to turn into a 10-week series by itself. John chapter 14, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. All of us know what it's like to have these questions asked of us. All of us know what it's like to ask these questions. How are you doing? What's wrong? Is everything okay? Are you sure everything's fine? Come on, something's bothering you. We all know what it's like to identify someone with a deep and heavy and troubled heart. And we all know what it's like to have that troubled heart and sometimes to try to hide it, other times to try to run to find solace for it. I hope it brings you no surprise that life is full of things to be worried about. You can worry about the economy if you wanted to. You can worry about the government. You can worry about your money. You can worry about your lack of money. You could worry about dangers on the road, dangers that come with flying, dangers with your house, problems with your house. You could worry about your health. You could worry about your family. You could even worry about your pets. You could worry about your jobs, your tasks, your procrastinated tasks. It's that list of procrastinated tasks that occupies a lot of my worry. You can worry about your appearance, your reputation. You can worry about your stuff. You can worry about the stuff you don't have. You can worry about, and you fill in the blank, the list goes on and on and on. Worry comes pretty easy, doesn't it? Having a troubled heart comes pretty easy, doesn't it? It's easy to be downcast. It's easy to be worried. All you have to do is really be in tune with what is going on around you, and it's likely that you'll find something to be down about. What do you worry about? What causes you consistent anxiety? What causes you the deepest 
anxiety? What makes your heart heavy? What makes your heart troubled? Well, statistics tell us, this is encouraging, that over 90% of what we worry about never comes to fruition. However, there are a lot of things that cause legitimate concern and legitimate anxiety. I don't have to give you a list of those things that cause your heart trouble. They're, they're grounded in the bedrock of your experience. A serious illness, a broken relationship, a lost job, a private trial that no one really understands but you and the Lord. All of us have legitimate things that cause our hearts to be heavy. They give us reason to feel troubled. Don Carson says that all we have to do is live long enough and we'll experience a deeply troubled heart. And I think he's right. As we start this 14th chapter of John, we, we find Jesus with his 11 faithful disciples. Remember, Judas has just left the building. Judas has announced that he's going to go out. Jesus has identified what he's going to do. And he says, what you do, do quickly. Judas has been sent on a path sent on a task actually by the Lord himself to leave the room and quickly go about the business of betraying him. Every time I think about that, I just think of the drama that's here and how Jesus is such in such control of the conversation. Because you would expect that after Jesus identifies Peter as the excuse me as Judas identifies Judas as the betrayer, wouldn't you expect that Peter Burly Peter would have stood up and taken Judas out. But before he can even get into that, he says, oh, and by the way, Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. We open up verse 1 of chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. The, the obvious inference from that is that the disciples' hearts were troubled. They've had quite a night so far, and the worst of it is still ahead. Think about it. They've been arguing over and over on the way to the room and in the room and around the table, and while Jesus is actually washing their feet, they're arguing over who's the best, who's the greatest, who's going to sit where when he establishes his kingdom on the Temple Mount. Later on, Jesus is going to be arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified. Most of the disciples watching or noticing that from a distance. We find Peter actually trailing this whole caravan, noticing what's going on with the Lord. They're about to run for their lives. And as Zechariah says, they will be scattered when the shepherd is struck. Jesus knew exactly what was ahead of not just him, We've seen that over and over in chapter 13. He knows of the suffering. He knows of the beating. He knows of the, the um, betrayal. He knows of the cross. He knows of the resurrection. He knows of all of it. And his concern is, is nowhere placed on that. But his concern is given to these men. Why? Verse 1 says, because they're troubled. He understands that they're problematically conflicted. So in this passage before us, Jesus begins to do what you would expect the great shepherd to do, which is what? Shepherd. To help, to know, to care, to emote, to feel, to console. And as he does this, we can eavesdrop 
on Jesus and the disciples and receive the same comforts, the same encouragements that he provided for them in their troubled experience and apply them to our own. Remember, this whole context, John 13 through John 17, is Jesus teaching his disciples how to live life with him, without him. How do you live life with an invisible Savior? He knows he's about to leave them on their own. And this upper room discourse is devoted to teach them how to live life with an invisible Savior. Let me remind you again, because it's so overwhelming to me. John says if everything that were written about Jesus could be written, it would the books would fill the whole world. He doesn't say it would fill all the books in the world. He says you would write those books, and those books would fill the whole world. Yet he only writes 21 chapters, and of those 21 chapters, five of them are spent on one conversation, this one. I think that's because Jesus wanted canonized, he wanted inscripturated the instruction he gave the disciples on how to live life by faith. How do you live in a life that's not tangible, How do you live a life in, as Hebrews says, with the conviction of things you can't see? All of that is given in the context of a troubled heart. How do we understand this? Well, let's look at this troubled heart. First of all, in verse 1, if you want a little outline, the first thing we're going to look at is a troubled heart is comforted by faith in Christ. A A troubled heart is comforted by faith in Christ. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Beginning here in verse 1, Jesus provides specific, a specific remedy for an old disease. What's the old disease? Worry, anxiety, a troubled heart. What's the remedy? Faith. Very simply, the disease is a troubled heart and the remedy is faith. These 11 men at the table are very conflicted. Remember, that table is about a foot and a half off the ground. They're laying on pillows. They're conversing. They're going back and forth. There's lots of conversations happening around the table. Jesus and Peter and um, John are actually having a conversation about Judas, and not everyone's listening because they're arguing over where they're going to sit tomorrow when Jesus establishes his kingdom, at least they thought. They're confused, they're scared, they're conflicted, they're disillusioned, they're disheartened. It says, don't let your heart be troubled. It's parasto, it means disturbed, unsettled, confused. It was used, remember when the angel came and stirred up the water? That's the same word used here. They're very unsettled. And the Lord's overwhelming lesson throughout the next two chapters seems to be the simplicity of giving them comfort, stability, to build up this shell-shocked group of men. In verse 27, we find, by the way, that not only are they in need of comfort, but they're scared. They're very afraid. Look at verse 27. (coughs) Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you as the world gives. I do not give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. There's the word again. Nor let it be what? Fearful. So now we find out that they're not only troubled, they're afraid. What's put them in this state? Why are they troubled? Why are they afraid? Well, let's put some of the chronology together. Remember, they've been arguing over who's the greatest among themselves. They've been motivated and moved by selfishness, jealousy. It's put them at odds with each other. This band of brothers who had walked up the hill from Jericho to Jerusalem, who'd spent that time in Bethany, now come across the Kidron Valley, up into the upper room, so unified. Now they're arguing. It seems as if everything is falling apart. Jesus came in, 
on, uh, 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 on palm branches into Jerusalem. And Palm Sunday, everyone was bowing the knee. Hosanna, you're the king. And they felt pretty good. They started saying, hey, where am I going to sit? Because this is good. I mean, think of what they thought. Jesus can heal people. Jesus can feed people. Jesus can invent food. Jesus can walk on water. Pretty good king to have. And if that was the celebrity, wouldn't you like to be walking around Jerusalem? I, Jesus, yeah, we're there. Midweek, though, everything turns. The conspiracy reaches an apex. The Pharisees and the scribes the Sadducees conspired against him along with the chief priests and the high priest himself. They conspire against Jesus. Now the whole city turns, and now they're against him, and they have this final meal, and they're looking at each other saying, what have we gotten ourselves into? Not only that, back in chapter 13, verse 21, they had seen their master was, quote, troubled in spirit. They just heard that one of them was going to betray Jesus. They were puzzled by the hasty departure of Judas. They were confused and frightened by Jesus' announcement that he would only be with them a little while longer. Can it get any worse? They were bewildered by the the little footnote, the writer of the announcement that Jesus is leaving when he says, and you can't come either. I'm leaving, I'm going to leave you, and you can't come. And they had all just heard, think about this, they had all just heard their leader, the brave and brute fisherman named Peter, their stalwart, brave leader, just told by the Lord, you, you are going to deny that you even know me. And Peter tries to say, oh, no, 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 no. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, actually, you will, but not now. There's no chapter division between, there shouldn't be, between 13 and 14. Right after this discussion with Peter, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Why? Because their hearts were troubled. I mean, their best and bravest just got faced by Jesus. I mean, if they think, think of this. If the bravest one, Peter, they know he's going to fall away, what does that say about their own confidence in their own hearts? So in light of what the Lord knows, namely that their hearts are troubled, Jesus gives them and us specific grounds for encouragement. This is overwhelming. I wish we could just spend the rest of the time overviewing this chapter. Um, The ways Jesus provides comfort for their troubled hearts is amazing. In verses 2 and 3, he says, you'll have the sure hope of heaven. No matter what happens here, I'm going and I'm going to find a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You have the sure way to heaven in verses 4 through 11. I'm going to make sure you know the way to heaven. Thirdly, you have the surety of Christ's continuing work after his departure. Verses 12 and 14 say, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to take care of you. Fourthly, the sure promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit in Christ's absence in verses 15 to 17. Fifthly, the sure promise of Christ that he will not leave his people forever, but he will come back again and get them, verses 18 to 24. Sixth, the assurance that the Spirit would teach them and give them an understanding when he left them alone. They would figure all of this out that they didn't understand. And last, the sure promise that Jesus will leave his peace with them in his absence, verse 27. Jesus says, I know you're troubled, but the remedy for that is to have faith. Back to verse 1. 
Don't miss the remedy. Jesus begins with it at the end of verse 1. Your heart's troubled? Tell you what, believe in God, believe also in me. What's the answer? Believe. What is belief? Faith. Now, we're not too far removed from the disciples, are we? Are we so different than they are? I mean, do you get anxious when it seems like others are advancing and you're getting left behind? When others are occupying a more prominent place than you, do you feel the temptation to step it up, to be counted as they are? Do you struggle with your faith in God? Can we be, have an honest moment? Do you ever lay in bed at night or wake up in the morning or drive your car or walk around and think, I'm pretty sure I'm right. You ever struggle with your faith in the gospel when other religious people say, no, that's, that's not the only way to heaven? Do you have a pause in your conscience to say, well, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I have confidence that this is right? Do you doubt the presence of the Holy Spirit with you? Do, you? do you have trouble when you can't see, taste, smell, touch, feel, or hear him? How about this? Do you get fearful about death? Does death seem more like an end to something than the beginning of something? If you can answer yes to any or most of those questions, you are like the disciples. It's exactly where they were. I love J.C. Ryle's words. He says, even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace, their salvation, and glory, which is heaven. All of us have bitter cups to drink of trials and debilitating moments where our faith is weak. So what do we do? How do you fix that? What does Jesus tell the disciples to do? It's right here in the verse. Believe, believe, believe. Believe in God, also believe in me. Isaiah 26.3, the steadfastness of mine you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. In other words, those who are exercising faith have peace. Those who are living by sight will never have peace. Have you read the newspapers? Is there any way to have peace in our experience? There's no way. How do you increase your faith in God and your faith in Christ? It's the right question. If we're going to do what Jesus asks us to do, to believe, to believe, to exercise faith, how do you do that? You read God's word and you take it as true. It's very simple. You read God's word and you take it as true as truth. You know what God has said in his word, which means we read it and we believe what God has said in his word, which means we take something away from our reading. Now you may be saying, Rick, is this the read your Bible more sermon? Yes, it is. And there'll be a lot more of them. You have to exercise faith. The exercising of faith is only fed by belief, and belief is only accomplished when we're reading God's word so there's something in our faith to attach to. Don't underestimate the power of God's written revelation on a troubled heart. Read the history of the church. All the great men and women of history all found their troubled hearts solved in exercising faith by simply reading and believing and trusting in what God said in his book, The Word of God, the Bible. Second, a troubled heart is resolved by the hope of Christ. A troubled heart is resolved by the hope of Christ. Verse 2, in my father's house, 
There are many dwelling places. Please, please, please. If your Bible says mansions, smile and put in the margin dwelling places or rooms. I love the old King James, but not mansions. There's another word for big houses. This isn't it. This is like a room that you would stay in overnight. If it were not so, I would have told you. Why? For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. I love this. Not to heaven. Receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is talking about heaven. He refers to it as his father's house. Here's where the confusion starts setting in, by the way, for the disciples. When the disciples heard this designation, the father's house, what did they think? Now, now put yourself, they're Birkenstocks for a second. What were they thinking when they heard Jesus say, in my father's house? Their obvious reference, their obvious thought would have gravitated downhill 800 yards to the temple. That, that was his father's house, wasn't it? He referred to the temple as his father's house. In my father's house, there are many rooms. There are many dwelling places. Apartments for the priests, merchants, workers in the temple were in a stack three stories high on the southern end of the temple mount. When Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house and get a room ready for you, they thought Jesus is going to go down 800 yards to the temple mount and find where we're going to live when he's king. They were thinking exactly temporally. This wasn't what the King James says, mansions. It just means rooms, a place to stay. Now, we know that Jesus wasn't talking about the Temple Mount. Jesus was actually talking about heaven. How do we know that? Well, don't miss what he says in verse 6. We'll come back to that, that. He's talking about coming to the Father's presence. Uh, this is really interesting, by the way, as a footnote. Don't miss Jesus' stated familiarity with the abode of heaven. Look at that little phrase. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Who can say that? Who can say, you know, if heaven wasn't like, this, like I'm telling you, I would have told you. Only one who had lived in heaven, who had been to heaven. In this Christmas season, we're celebrating the incarnation of God. God, the creator God, became a man. And when we get to John chapter 17, he begins praying some bizarre stuff. Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was created. Who can say that? The one who has lived there before. This is Jesus, God himself. The Lord informs the disciples of something that would have provided their hearts immeasurable comfort, especially in the coming years as they, as they began to minister and teach and be persecuted. He was going to get their rooms ready in heaven. He was personally going to get their room ready for when they died and came home. This is another expression. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to go get a servant to wash your feet. He girded himself as a slave and washed their feet. Now he's going to be the maid. Listen, I'm going to go away. 
and I'm going to get your room in heaven, your room, your, the place you're going to live. I'm going to personally get it ready. I'll make sure there's something to eat. I'll make sure there's a bed there. I'll make sure that the comforts that you desire when you go home are there. He calls heaven his father's house. They thought the temple, he's talking about heaven. In other words, heaven is, this. I love this, home. This is, this is dad's house. This is Abba's house. This is my father's home. It's the home of Jesus and it's the home of Christians. Remember, these, these three men were especially um, sensitive to the concept of home. They have been on the go with this teacher, this rabbi, for three years. They didn't know where they were going to sleep every night. So when Jesus says, home, my father's house, my father's home, there had to be this deep sense of almost a spiritual deep breath and sigh. Finally, rest, home. Hebrews 4 calls heaven eternal what? Rest. Three years, their hearts long for stability, comfort of home, love of home, the loved ones at home, the welcome of home. But believers like them are aliens on this planet just passing through. But in the life to come, we will be at home. It's the Father's house. It's a welcome place with a welcome room with a special comfort from the Savior. But the most impressive attribute of heaven is given here in verse 3. Look at that. He says, if I go there, and you would expect him to say, it's going to have these streets of gold and doorknobs of silver and you know, all this manna you can eat. There'll be no death in heaven. I wish there would be salmon there, but it's hard to me to justify salmon because you have to kill the fish. Anyway, there'll be great things to eat. So he's explaining this to him. You'd expect him to say, this is what it's going to be like. You know what he says? I'm going to bring you there, here's the catch, where I am. Okay, put your spiritual seatbelt on for a second. If heaven isn't attractive to you, it's because you're thinking about what heaven is, what heaven provides, and what you will miss on the earth when you go to heaven. What makes heaven attractive is where Jesus is. It's where I am. Where I am, I'm going to bring you there where I am. Heaven is a place of fellowship with the living, resurrected Savior who will meet us there, bring us there personally. It says here, it's remarkable, I'm going to come and get you. I will receive you to myself. Jesus, get this, when we close our eyes and our heart beats its last, he doesn't send an angel. He doesn't send a light. Jesus Christ comes to take the hand of the believer and escort them to their room. I love the promise of Jesus being the personal escort to heaven. You know, the way believers think about death and heaven must disappoint the Lord. It's something we avoid. It's uh, something we don't want to think about. I told you before, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. That seems like a problem. Yet, Psalm 116, listen, Psalm 116, 
Precious, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Huh? It's our death is precious to Christ. Let me freak you out a little bit, can I? In John <coughs> chapter 17, you can turn over there if you want to, verse 24. Okay, hold on. Jesus prayed for your death if you know Christ. Verse 24, Father, this is the high priestly prayer, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. That's heaven. He's speaking in the future. So that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. Unbelievable. Jesus prays, bring them where I am. Are, are you okay with the fact that Jesus has asked the Father for you to be with him? And the way that happens is most likely going to be to die. I believe that the rapture will come. I hope it comes today. But more people have died than will be raptured. We know the Lord. Are you okay with the fact that Jesus tells the Father, oh, I can't wait till you take him out of this world and bring them to me and behold my glory? You're standing in the corner. Um, but that would mean that I would die. Jesus said, that's right. I'm not really comfortable with that. You will be. I'm a little afraid about that. Don't worry about it. My heart's troubled about it. This is comfort. That's his point. I desire that they be with me where I am. Philippians 1.21, I love Paul. Paul's so wonderfully schizophrenic in this passage. Philippians 1, you can just listen, verse 21 to 25. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That doesn't make any sense. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, first of all, the verbs don't make sense. You expect him to say, to, to love Christ, to, to, to serve Christ. No, no. For to me, to live simply is Christ. And dying, that's gain. Why is it gain? Because faith turns to sight. But if I'm to live on the flesh, and then he has this argument with himself and records it for us. You can hear him scratching his head, but you know what? If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But I don't know what to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions because I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that's very much better. The Greek is just ridiculous here. It's very much betterest. It's the best possible. You can't even explain how good it is. It's comparative and superlative. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Oh, convinced of this, I know that I will remain, continue for your progress and joy in the faith. He actually says, oh man, it would be great to stay a minister for Christ, but I would rather leave. I would rather put my head on that block, have it severed, and be with Jesus. I am so hard-pressed. I don't know which one to choose. Do I want to be faithful here or go to my heavenly reward? And he says, I would rather... Go to my heavenly reward. But I guess for Christ's sake and yours, I'll stay and do ministry. I mean, have you ever had such a conversation in your heart? Boy, want to die today. Oh, I'd love to see Jesus today. But I guess it's, I need to stay and serve my family and serve the people around me. We're afraid to do that because what if we did that and God said, great, come home. We, whoa, whoa. No, it all comes from Jesus who says, where I am, there will you be also. Randy Alcorn 
very good friend of mine, amazing book he's written on heaven called Heaven. He says, earth is an in-between world touched by both heaven and hell. Earth leads directly into heaven or directly into hell, affording a choice between the two. Then this, this, is, this is a life-changing sentence for me. The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life on earth is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, listen to this. He says, for Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. And for unbelievers, this present life is the closest they will come to heaven. The question we ask is, do we want to be where Christ is? Is that comforting? The only reason that's comforting is if we know Jesus enough that he's attractive and we want to be with him. Third, a troubled heart is motivated by the pursuit of Christ. A troubled heart is motivated by pursuing Christ. This is, if, if you don't think there's humor in the Bible, watch this next passage. Jesus baits them so perfectly and so beautifully. He says, I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going to come where I am. You'll be with me. And they're all thinking down on the temple mount. And then he says, and you know the way where I'm going. You know the way where I'm going. Now, they were thinking, is he going to take King David Street down, take a left? Go, is he going to go around because to avoid the, 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 the Jewish um, uh, persecution? Which way is he going to go? We want to know which way he's going to go. And Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. And it gets really quiet. You would expect Peter to say something, but is Peter really going to say anything right now? After having just been told in, uh, in front of the rest of the disciples, you're going to deny him three times? He doesn't speak up. Then Thomas. We usually call Thomas Doubting Thomas. And we, we give him a hard time. Thomas is a very bold and brave guy here. He's the one who speaks up. Um, he's the hero. Not vocal Peter, but Thomas. We know why Peter would have been quiet here. And Thomas kind of says, <clears throat> uh, Lord, actually, we... Uh, I'm going to tell you this, but we... Uh, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Are you going to go to the apartments on the south end of the steps? Are you going to go to the Temple Mount where we had the argument yesterday? Are you going to go into the Holy of Holies? And are you going to, what, what, where are you going? And if you've been to Israel, the Temple Mount will be an easy place not to meet up with someone. It's big. They want to know exactly, where are you going, Lord? Where are you going? Thomas says, you just said we know where you're going, and I, I don't know how to tell you this, Jesus, but we don't. How are you going to get to the Temple Mount? But I love the fact that Thomas is motivated to be where Jesus is. He doesn't want to miss out. He wants to make sure he knows where Jesus is, where he is now and forever, and that's where he wants to be. Don't relegate Thomas to doubting Thomas. This is lover of Jesus, Thomas. You're going to go somewhere? I want to know how you're going to... You say we know where we're going. I, I, I got to confess, Lord, I, we don't know where you're going. How do we get to where you're going? Which leads us, number four, to a troubled heart is dissolved by the place or the abode of Christ. 
Thomas says, Jesus says, you know where I'm going. Thomas says, actually, we don't. And I think Thomas and the disciples were expecting Jesus to say, okay, I want you to go out down the stairs from the upper room. I want you to go down around the gate, come in from the side, and I'll meet you there, and then we'll go up the steps. And This verse that everyone knows in context is the most amazing verse. In fact, I think it's probably in the top two or three most important verses in the whole Bible. Jesus said to him, I am the road. I'm the way. I'm the way. And the truth and the life And no one comes, he doesn't say the Father's house. Now we're talking about the presence of God. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'll say it again as plainly as I can. This is one of the most important verses in your Bible. In the context, the disciples are expecting to find out which route to take down the Temple Mount, 800 yards away downhill. They're expecting directions. But Jesus turns their understanding from the temple a half mile away to heaven, which is impossible to walk to. I'm the way. Which way am I going? I'm the way. Which way do you need to go? I am the way. How do you get there? I am the path. I'm the road. I'm the way. This is so simple, a four-year-old can get it. How do you get to heaven? By the way of Jesus. By faith in him. You go back to verse 1. Hey, you have faith in God? Believe in me also. It's interesting, too, that in Acts 19.9 and Acts 19.23, Christians were known as those who belonged to the way. It stuck. Remember, when they were called Christians, that was a term of derision. They originally would call themselves, we belong to the way. Way to where? The way to heaven. They belong to Jesus, who is the way. John 10, 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. How clear is that? He is the way. Romans 5, 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of glory. In other words, faith in Christ is the way in. Ephesians 2.18. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. How clear is that? Hebrews 10.20. Jesus, by a new and living way, inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The way to come into the Holy of Holies. He is the way. He also says I'm the truth. In other words, I'm not false. You can trust what I'm telling you. You can trust who I am. John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I am the life. This was very encouraging to them. I am the life, and it'll be encouraging to them, especially tomorrow night. Because remember, tomorrow morning, he's going to be put on a cross about 9 o'clock. Tomorrow night, he's going to be in the grave. And he says, I'm the life. John 1, 4. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. If we believe that, there is no troubled heart. If death is conquered, 
there's nothing to be troubled about. 1 John 5, 20, we know that the Son of God has come. He has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John 17, 3, what is eternal life? To know God and Jesus whom sent. He is everlasting life. What's the greatest threat this world has against us? Death. What's the greatest offer that Jesus gives us? Life so that we can be with him. But the most penetrating and determinative words of our Lord appear at the end of verse six. Look there. No one comes to the Father but through me. The bottom line is this. Jesus is, let me say it very clearly, eye contact, okay? Like I'm talking to my sons. Very clearly, there is no other way to go to heaven. None except Jesus. He is the only way. He says very specifically, exclusively, there is no way to the Father except by the way of Jesus. No other way, no matter how well intended, no matter how good the deeds, no matter how devote the religion, he is the only way. You know why? There is no other religion by which God saves humanity by the gift of perfect righteousness in the human, divine, mysterious incarnation of one who can identify with us and with God and be a substitute for our sin alone and give us the righteousness that he himself has in himself. No other true religion. There's no other religion, only one. You say, well, that sounds exclusivistic. So did Jesus. No one is clever enough to get to heaven. No one is wise enough to get to heaven. No one is kind enough to get to heaven. No one is good enough to get to heaven. Let me make it as simple as possible. You know how you go to heaven? You have to be perfect. You have to be perfect. No one can go to heaven unless you're perfect. Anybody qualify? Anybody in history qualify? Only one man. We don't go to heaven by our own perfection. Romans talks about this, this big theological word, imputation, which means you transfer from one account to the other. Jesus imputes his perfection to my account. You say, wait a minute, my account's full of sin. He takes my sin and puts it on him at the cross. Never forget driving with one of my sons a few years ago talking about this, and he said, Dad, that's not fair for Jesus. Aren't you glad our God is not fair? Only through the person and work of Jesus Christ can anyone see the Father. God is too holy, man is too sinful for there to be any other way to come into one another's presence except by the mediator, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of his blood, there is no remission for sins. Heaven is the ultimate answer for a troubled heart. 